John chapter 9, please, in your Bibles. John chapter 9. Title of the sermon this evening is The Paradox of Christianity. I can imagine that uh, Brother Grismore might have had a hard time with that title, sermon title, and perhaps even the points, um, attempting to find some songs that might apply themselves appropriately. However, as we think about Christianity, and we'll talk about it a little more in a moment, we'll find that, to be quite honest, these paradoxes are everywhere in Christianity. Let's talk about it. You say, well, Pastor, I don't even know what a paradox is. So let's talk about paradoxes for a moment. We'll get a little bit of a baseline for what a paradox is. And then after we figure out what a paradox is, perhaps we can figure out how the Christian life is full of them. Now, a paradox is a statement or a group of statements that leads to a contradiction or a situation which, if true, denies logic or reason. It's a statement or a group of statements that leads to a contradiction or a situation which, if true, denies logic or reason. Now, paradoxes are often used in plays or such to create comical situations, though they may not actually be true, they still contain truth. Let me give you a few paradoxes. This was a big one when I was in college. The more I learn, the less I know. The more I learn, the less I know. That's a paradox. The more I learn, the less I know. Well, there is some truth to that. You know, the more you learn, the more you read books, the more you realize you really don't know much. The more you learn, the more you realize that the body of knowledge out there is so vast that you could never learn at all. But at the same time, there's an untruth to it too, is there not? Because the more you're learning, the more you are actually knowing. If you're learning things, then you're knowing more than you knew before. So that's a paradox. There's some comical, um, perhaps sarcastic, perhaps um, ironic um, attributes to that statement. Let's think of another paradox. One gentleman said this, What a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. What a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. He was speaking of the reality that when you're a young man, you tend to be immature, you tend to be headstrong. If, if, if you could take the mind of a 50-year-old man and place it into the body of an 18-year-old boy, then you're going to find that you could have a man with all of that reason and all of that experience and all of that knowledge with a body that can back it up. And he can take the energy and the vigor of youth and he can use that energy and that vigor for great things. I was at a pastor's conference last year and I was talking to one of the gentlemen there. And of course, I'm a young pastor and he was fairly young himself, but uh, probably still in his late 30s or so. Um, and uh, he was talking with me and I was telling him about uh, this church plant and all of the, the things that, that we have planned and the vision and all of that. And he said this, he said, if only, I had, if only I could have planted a church in my youth. He said, I just find myself running out of energy to do this church plant, to pastor this church. And, and he had just planted a church not too long ago. And he said, I just find myself running out of energy. If only I could have planted a church in, in his youth. Well, he was saying that youth is wasted on the young. That if only he could have that youthful vigor with what he knew and, and the preparation that he had had now to be a pastor of a church plant that he would have been very happy. 
Here's another one. One gentleman in, one, in, in a book said this, All men are equal, but some men are more equal than others. All men are equal, but some men are more equal than others. We kind of see this in politics sometimes, do we not? You know, I have people that espouse that all men are created equal, only you can't do that and they can do this. And all of a sudden, some men are more equal than others. That's a paradox. There are contradictory statements that deny logic or reason. Well, in God's Word, we have paradoxes. But these are a little bit different from a typical paradox. I like to label them as true paradoxes. See, these paradoxes tend to be true from a certain point of view. From the old man's point of view, youth is wasted on the young. From the despot's point of view, all men are equal, only some men are more equal. From the academic's point of view, the more I know, or the more I learn, the less I know. But then when you put that shoe on the other foot and you're the young man, you say, hey, youth isn't wasted on me. I've got you know, plenty of plans. I've got plenty of ideas. There's no waste here. And then in 50 years, he'll realize that his youth was wasted on him being young. And so paradoxes tend to be based upon our perspective. Well, in the Christian life, paradoxes are not about perspective. These are true paradoxes in that they are inherently a part of the working world in which we live. The working world in which God created contains inherent paradoxes. Let me share some of the paradoxes that we find in Scripture with you. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There's some contradiction there. A friend is the one that's going to wound you, and the enemy is the one that is blessing you. There's a, con there's a bit of a contradiction there, but it's true, is it not? That the friend who is coming up to you and in truth and in love, telling you something you need to hear even though you don't want to hear it, that is an act of love. Far more an act of love than if somebody comes up to you and is lying to you to tell you what you want to hear, but it's untrue. There's a paradox there. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 6-10 through 10 says this, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul is saying here that he had a physical ailment, a physical ailment that was given to him, and he said it was given to him by God so that he'll stay humble. He says, for this thing, for this physical problem, I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And here's what God told him. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says this, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. And here's the paradox. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul says, when I am at my strongest is when I'm at my weakest. What a paradox. What a contradiction. But is it not true in the Christian life that our strength comes when we allow ourselves to be weak and we allow God to be strong through us? 
Is it not true that the greatest strength that we have in the Christian life is to bow before God and say, God, I can't do this, but you can? It's absolutely true. It's a paradox, but it's absolutely true. True paradoxes. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 24. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church again, he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There are two paradoxes that are actually found throughout that passage. The first one is that God would take something like preaching, a fallible human being like me, and He would use this fallible human being to accomplish His purpose in you. God is taking the foolishness of my preaching... Those things that I am saying, such as giving you a bunch of paradoxes, like when I am weak, then I am I strong, and He is using these things in you to work about in you, Jesus Christ. Now, He would go on to say that the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And He would say that those men that are counted wise in the world are counted fools to God. Another paradox, that the very wisest men in this world, they can have all this great knowledge, and yet in the eyes of God, they have no knowledge at all. They have no knowledge at all compared to that which God knows. The paradoxes of Christianity. See, unlike the statements I mentioned before, those first paradoxes that I gave you as examples, these paradoxes cannot be explained away. They are not only true from a certain point of view, they are inherent in the way God has created this world. If you want to be strong... You better weaken yourself before God. I, uh, in, in college, one of the statements that oftentimes was espoused, particularly when I would go to a missionary prayer band, which was kind of a, a place where we would go and, and hear missionaries give presentations, is this. A man is strongest when he's on his knees. A man is strongest not when he's out doing things, but when he's on his knees beseeching God to do things through him. The man is strongest when he's on his knees. It's a paradox. It's a paradox of Christianity, but is it not true? In John chapter 9 this evening, as we look into the passage of Scripture, we're going to see a couple of paradoxes. We need to be prepared for these paradoxes. We need to have our heart ready to hear them. See, because the Jewish heart was not ready for these paradoxes. And they ended up rejecting them, and we must not do the same. So let's look this evening from John chapter 9 at two paradoxes of God's revelation in this world. Two paradoxes of, of God's revelation in this world. Look with me beginning in verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go, 
washed in the pool of Siloam, which was, which is, excuse me, by interpretation, sent. He went his way and washed and came seeing. First paradox we are going to look at this evening of the two is number one, God manifests himself through us, but also in us. God manifests himself through us, but also in us. Let's talk about the passage and then we'll talk about the point. Presumably, in John chapter 9, we still find ourselves in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been there since John 7. Jesus passes by a man who has been blind from birth and was begging. Now, it is probable that they were at the temple complex. We know from, the, from uh, many places in Scripture, Acts chapter 3 being one of them, that the men who were blind, the men who were lame, would often go to the temple complex to beg. There were a couple of reasons why. Number one, everyone went through the temple in Jerusalem. Everyone that was there went through the temple, and many of them went through daily, so it was a very visible place. But number two, many people coming into the temple came in to give alms. They were to give their money to the temple. They were to place their money in those boxes. We see that throughout Scripture, the times where, where the people are giving alms. Well, what better way to give alms than to give to this poor beggar? What better way to give alms than to give to this poor, poor blind man? And not only that, but the blind man knew if they're coming to the temple, they probably have some money with them because they're going to be giving their alms in the temple. It's just logical that they would be begging in the temple. Now, the disciples looked at this man and they don't so much look at him with empathy as much as they look at him with pity. It's not so much a caring look that they give, but a, a I'm sorry for that guy look. They were sorry for his state, but they felt as though it was the just recompense of some sin. We know this from verse 2. We read it. Let's look at it again. The disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? John chapter 9 has brought us face to face with that which we have been learning about for months in the book of Job. Thousands of years after Job was written, the people of Israel are still having trouble with this. They are still compelled to believe that this man's physical ailment, the fact that he was born blind, was somehow connected to either his sin or his parents' sin. Now, the reason why the Jews probably believed this was because of the misinterpretation of Old Testament law. In Exodus 34, verse 7, the law said this, the iniquity of the father, um, that, that God is going to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Have you ever wondered at that statement? What did God mean when he said that he would visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation? See, it's difficult to try to understand that because just one chapter earlier in the book of Exodus, God said this, Whosoever hath sinned against me him will I blot out of my book. He said that I will, I will recompense man's sin upon himself. And he would go on to say in Deuteronomy 24, 16, this, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Every man should bear his own sin. So how does that reconcile with Exodus 34 where it says that God would visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation? And this was probably the misinterpretation of Scripture that caused great, this, this great misinterpretation that caused them to say, hey, 
if, if the parents sin, then there's going to be physical ailments, physical problems upon their children and children's children as recompense for their sin. But this is not what God was saying. In this statement, God was not saying that He would visit the consequences of the individual sins upon successive generations. He was saying this, and stick with me here. He was saying that those sins, the sins of the Father, would perpetuate from generation to generation, passing down from father to son and creating a leanness, a weakness of soul through multi-generational sins. In other words, let's think of it this way. God says, if you sin, I will visit the iniquity of this sin upon these generations to come. And so Israel fell into idolatry. And dad, as we learned from Judges chapter 9 this morning, begins worshiping Baal Barith. And so he begins worshiping Baal Beerith, the god of the covenant, this, perhaps this ephod that Gideon had made. The next generation is now not worshiping Baal Beerith, but they're worshiping Ashtaroth. The next generation is no longer just worshiping Ashtaroth, they're worshiping Molech, and they are sacrificing their children, their firstborn children, on the altar of Molech. And so this sin is perpetuating from generation to generation to generation. And God is, is watching that and allowing that sin to perpetuate from generation to generation as a just recompense of these men's sins. So God is not saying, I'm going to cause the child to sin or to, to be punished for the parent's sin. It's that the parent's sin is going to cause multi-generational sins if there's not something that cuts it off if there's not repentance, if there's not the Father bowing before God and saying, God, forgive me for my sins and cutting that sin off, then it's going to perpetuate from generation to generation to generation in the hearts of our children. And that sin will be visited. That iniquity will be visited. So, so there's a misinterpretation of Scripture here. And Jesus Christ makes it very clear that this is a misinterpretation in verse 3. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus confirms that the man was not born blind for some sin of himself or his parents, but he was born blind, and here we go, so that the works of God could be manifest in him. And herein we find our first paradox. God does not exclusively work through us. Oftentimes, he will work in us as well. Say, Pastor, what in the world do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked. I'm about to tell you. God works through you when you share the gospel, when you love your neighbor as yourself, when you live sound doctrine before the world. God works through you when you hand out a gospel tract or when you open your Bible and you show someone something from the Word of God or when you send an encouraging note to someone that tells that, them that you've been praying for them or when you are praying for somebody else God is working through you God works in you when you have an illness or a tragedy or a heartbreak or when you have a financial situation or a stressful situation or whatever the case may be and God uses that situation in you to further the purposes of His kingdom on this earth. Oftentimes, it is our most vulnerable moments in life that God does His greatest work in our lives 
and in the lives of others. Oftentimes, it is those moments of greatest need when God's person and work are most magnified in our lives. So it was with the blind man that his weakness was divinely given to him by God in order that God might do a great work in his life and use him to glorify Jesus Christ. Jesus then said to his disciples in verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. We're going to see this idea come up again in John chapter 11. That Jesus only has a certain amount of time to do this work that God has called him to do. But as long as he is in the world, he is the light of the world. Now this passage is fairly straightforward as to what Jesus Christ means. But in John chapter 11, it's going to be a little more confusing. Perhaps you can put a little... Confer with John chapter 11 if you write in your Bibles. John chapter 11 verse 9. Or maybe you can write a little note in your notes that says John chapter 11 verse 9. Because when you get there, I encourage you to interpret John chapter 11 through 9, uh, 11 verse 9 through the lens of John 9 verse 4. That's going to help you a great deal as you try to understand what, what Jesus Christ is saying in John 9. And of course, we'll get there in a few, in a few weeks and we'll be able to explain it together. Well, following Jesus Christ's announcement that he has time to work and he needs to work during his time of light, he spits on the ground and he takes this mud that he made with that spit and that dirt and he rubs it on the eyes of the blind man. And he tells the blind man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. And he doesn't tell the man what will happen. He simply tells the man to obey. And it says that he went his way and washed. And when he came back from the pool of Siloam, the man could see. The man had his eyesight. Well, this created an interesting situation among the people. They saw this man who had been blind since birth walking around with full eyesight. He wasn't bumping into walls. He wasn't bumping into trees. He wasn't bumping into people. He was walking around and he could see. He could discern direction. He saw an object in front of him and he could get around that object. He had his eyesight back. Now they asked him how it was done. To which he replied that Jesus had healed him. And now we come to the events as we've seen them all throughout the book of John thus far. We know how this works. The Pharisees heard the circumstance. The Pharisees heard that this blind man who had been blind since birth was healed and they have to do damage control. It's time for them to somehow make it so that the fewest number of people possible hear about this. It's time for them to do whatever they could to discredit Jesus Christ in the eyes of the people. The Pharisees called this blind man before them and interviewed him. Now, before we move on, look at verse 14. Excuse me, look in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind What does it say next? And it was the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath day. Now here we go again. Presumably, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles. We are one year removed from the healing of the man with the infirmity for 38 years at the Pool of Bethesda. We recall the great controversy of the healing of the the man with the infirmity at the Pool of Bethesda. Let's get interactive for a moment. What was the great problem when the man with the infirmity was healed at the pool of Bethesda. What was the great uproar that was caused? Anyone? Uh, Taylor? 
He was carrying his bed when? On the Sabbath. Jesus Christ said, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. And the Pharisees said, You are carrying your bedroll. You are carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. How dare you do that? They completely didn't even look at the fact that he'd been, had an infirmity for 38 years and now he could finally... He, he, was, he was healed. He was miraculously healed. Don't worry about that. He was carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath day. How dare he? And of course, Jesus Christ reasons... or The, the man reasons with them and Jesus Christ tells him, uh, go and sin no more. Now we come to John chapter 7. And Jesus Christ is in the temple and he is debating with the people at the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7. It's a different feast, a year later, presumably. And they're debating about this healing on the Sabbath day. They came to Jesus and they said, remember last year when you healed the man on the Sabbath day? This was a big deal. And Jesus Christ told the Pharisees that they are judging unrighteous judgments. And he put them in their place. And he said, look, is it unlawful to do good on the Sabbath day? No, it's not unlawful to do good on the Sabbath day. He really put them in their place. And here we are. It's the exact same feast. And this man is healed on the Sabbath day. There's some irony to this. And I trust that you see that because it's, it's here. And it's supposed to be there. And it's present. And it's just one thing heaped upon another. And these Pharisees don't know what to do. And Jesus Christ keeps keeps putting them in their place and they keep getting offended at him and it's just like a nightmare for these Pharisees. They just, they want him to leave. They just want him to leave. This is terrible and they're having to do damage control once again. So the Pharisees interrogate this man. Verses 15 through 23, we won't read it for sake of time. They tell the man that Jesus is not of God in verse 16 because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. He keepeth not the Sabbath day because he healed this man on the Sabbath. He keepeth not the Sabbath day because he told a man just last year to carry his bed and walk after being healed from 38 years of infirmity on the Sabbath. He can't be from God. Can you see them missing the forest for the trees here? Can you see them straining at the gnat while swallowing a camel? Can you see the craziness of their statement? This man was born blind. He could see. They didn't have great LASIK surgery back then. He didn't get himself under a laser so that he could see blurry things after a certain number of, of, of procedures. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Jesus Christ saying, Go do this. The man did it and he could see. He could see everything. And they don't even regard that. They say he's not of God because he told him to do it on the Sabbath day and they forgot that he just healed a man of blindness. Way off base here. Way confused. Verse 17, they ask the man, what do you think of Jesus? They say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him? that he hath opened thine eyes. He saith he is a prophet. I believe he's a prophet. Then they called the parents to testify. Get the parents in here. This, maybe this is the wrong man. Get the parents in here. The parents confirm that this is their son. 
that their son was born blind, that he grew up blind, that he's been blind since birth, that there's never been a point where they suspected he could see, that there's never been a point where they said, I really wonder if he's just playing us the whole time. I wonder if he's really, you know, he actually has sight, but, but you know, for these past 20 years of his life, he's just been pretending he's blind. They never had any circumstance like that. They said, no, this, this man, he was born blind, he, he has always been blind. And the Pharisees continue to ask them questions and the parents say this. They say, look, he's of age. He's old enough to answer for himself. Please don't ask us questions. Let him answer the questions. They did this because they were afraid of the Pharisees. They knew that the Pharisees were on a witch hunt. It's not their fault their son was just healed from a, a lifetime of blindness. Don't, don't, don't hunt down us because of something that happened to him. They didn't want to be a part of the, the Pharisees' witch hunt. So they say, you know what? He's of age. Just ask him. Well, the Pharisees do. They turn their eyes back to Jesus, uh, back to the blind man, and they begin asking him again. And this is where we're going to transition to our second point this evening. Our first point, God manifests himself through us, but also in us. See, God was working. He wasn't working through the blind man yet, he will, but he was working in the blind man. He used the blind man's circumstances outside of the blind man's control to, to glorify God. God does this in our lives sometimes. The second paradox we see this evening is this. God opens the eyes of the blind and blinds the eyes of the seeing. God opens the eyes of the blind and blinds the eyes of the seeing. Verses 24 through 41. Now following the testimony of the man's parents, they again turn to the man himself. And they ask him to give God the praise by denouncing Jesus Christ. Notice his response in verse 25. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees are saying, Look, we're your religious leaders. We're telling you that Jesus Christ is a bad man. So we want you to glorify God by saying Jesus Christ is a bad man. We want you to glorify Christ, or glorify God, not Christ. Glorify God by saying Jesus Christ is a sinner. And the man says, Look, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I know one thing. There's one thing I can tell you. I was blind, and now I see. I, before, I could not see, and now I can. Before, I couldn't look into your eyes because I didn't know where they were. Now I'm looking into your eyes and telling you I can see. That's all he was saying. They again ask him, and I love this. Look at verse 26, 27. Then said they unto him again, What did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? How did he do it? What did he do? Verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore, would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Do you want to hear the story again? They say, well, tell us, tell us how he did this. I already told you how he did this. Well, Tell us how he did it. No, no, no. See, I already told you how he did it. They are waiting and they're going to keep repeating the question again and again and again until they get the answer they're looking for. The formerly blind man actually calls out their hypocrisy. He tells them that Jesus has done great miracles and that there's no reason to discount his claims. Look at verse 31. He says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, 
him he heareth. Since the world began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. He says, look, I don't know what you are, are claiming about him. I don't know what kind of answer you're looking for from me when you ask how he did it. I told you how he did it. He spit in the ground. He made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to wash in the pool of Siloam. And when I washed in the pool of Siloam, like he told me to do, I could see. I don't know what you're looking from me, but I can't give it to you because I'm simply telling you what happened. They said, but he's a sinner. Well, I don't know if he's a sinner, but look, I can reason this out in my mind. God doesn't hear sinners. From the beginning of the world, it's never been said that men could go around saying, hey, look, I'm a servant of, of Satan, but I want you to become... that You were born blind, I want you to see, and they could see. This has never happened from the beginning of the world. If this man were not of God, could he really not... Could he do these things? Simple logic, is it not? It's pretty plain and simple. It's pretty plain and simple. This statement was not well received by the Pharisees. They reviled him. They rebuked him. And they cast him out of their sight. Get this man out of my sight. This man's just another one of them. He's just another sinner. There's no hope for this one. Get him out of my sight. As the epistle of John concludes this account in John chapter 9, Jesus reveals to the formerly blind man himself the paradox of faith that confronts those who hear the gospel. Jesus found the man, and notice what he says in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Now the man had not heard Jesus' teachings. He'd been spending his life at the temple begging. But the heart of the man was devoted to the truth of God. The heart of the man had already received the truth of God. He was just waiting to hear it. And so he says in verse 36, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Just tell me who he is. I'm ready. I'm there. I understand that you are a prophet of God. You have just done something to me that I could not even possibly have ever fathomed. I was born blind and now I can see. I see that God is real and that you are working, that God is working through you. If you tell me who this Son of God is, I'm ready to believe. Jesus Christ says, verse 37, Thou hast both seen Him and it is He that talketh with thee. Now, there's some significance to the fact that Jesus Christ says, you've seen him. Because this man hasn't seen too many people, has he? He's only, been, he's only had eyesight for a few minutes now. I don't know how long the Pharisees were interrogating him. Hasn't been too long. He's seen the Pharisees. He's seen a few people in passing. But he's now seen Jesus Christ. You've seen him. But there's also a double meaning here. You see... This man has seen Jesus Christ. This man has seen the Son of God and the Pharisees have not seen the Son of God. This man has seen Him through a heart of belief when the Pharisees, who've had their eyesight their whole life and who have seen Jesus Christ numerous times walk by them, they've contended with Him, but they haven't seen the Son of God. They've seen the man, but they haven't seen the express image of God through the man. 
And this is going to be very important as we continue in John chapter 9. So Jesus says, you have, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, the blind man said, formerly blind man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus then turns to the people. He turns away from the blind man and he turns to the people and he says this. Verse 39. For judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. There's a pretty interesting paradox, is it not? I am come into this world that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. He continues, And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. See, this blind man believed. So Jesus Christ said, you see the Son of God and He is standing before you. And what did the man say? He confirmed what was in his heart with his lips. I believe! Because his heart was prepared to believe on the Son of God. These Pharisees who had seen Jesus time and time again but had hardened their heart against the truth of God's Word and embraced darkness. They could see with their eyes all day, but they were made blind by their own unbelief. Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. If you, had just, if you would just recognize that you are not the end all of your faith, if you would just humble yourself and recognize that when I am weak, then I am strong. That when I, have, when, I, when I recognize myself as a sinner, then I can come before God and receive that remission of sins. If you would just humble yourself, then you would finally see the Son of God. But as long as you're going to stand up on your own two feet and say, you know what? I see just fine. I've got everything under control. I do good things. I go to church. I give. I'm a nice person. I'm doing just fine here. As long as we have that self-righteousness in our hearts, Jesus Christ says we're going to remain blind. This is the paradox of the Christian life. If you want to see, you need to be blind. If you believe that you see without Jesus Christ's help, then you're the blind man. And you'll remain in your blindness until the day that you finally humble yourself before Him. You know, we live this life and it is said that we live a life of faith. We talked about it this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not nonsensical, but it is paradoxical. It's not nonsense to put our faith in Jesus Christ, but there is a paradox that we must understand. Well, we don't have to understand it, but we must accept it, as it were. We don't have to see the paradox, but we must live the paradox. 
to accept the gospel. The gospel has substance, but it asks you to do the exact opposite of what your flesh and what your heart want, knowing that in doing so, you are doing the exact thing you need. And so Jesus Christ will tell us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, and Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, he that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. What a paradox. The man that is willing to lose his life, to give up that which he considers important, and give up all of that self-righteousness, and give up all of his self-efforts toward heaven, and will simply rest in Jesus Christ, is the one who will find salvation through his name. The one who will cling to himself and will cling to his own ability and will cling to his own righteousness and will cling to his own possessions and will cling to this world with both hands is the one that's going to lose his life because he's trying so hard to gain it. What a paradox. Jesus Christ would go on in Matthew 16, 26 to say this, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I can spend my entire life pursuing everything that the world has to offer, but what good is it if it all burns up and I burn up with it in hell? But the man who will give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose is the man who at the end of the day has given up this world but has claimed eternal riches. What a paradox. What a paradox. Jesus teaches that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the man who will be the servant and the minister of others. Matthew 20, verses 26 and 27. And Jesus Christ Himself came as the ultimate paradox, did He not? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and how did He arrive upon this earth? A lowly child, born and laid in a manger because there was no room for Him in the inn. The greatest king, the creator of the world, humbles himself to the most lowly estate. See, folks, the Christian life is a life of paradoxes. But they're true paradoxes. They are the very framework upon which all life persists. These paradoxes are not random. They are not useless. They are purposeful. These paradoxes exist to, to separate the sheep from the goats. These paradoxes exist to separate those who would humble themselves before God and those who will live in self-righteousness. The man who tries to come to Jesus Christ on his own terms will have no problem doing so until the day he comes face to face with the paradox of the gospel. The rich man comes to Jesus Christ and he says, Jesus, I have kept the law from my youth. What more must I do to obtain the kingdom of heaven? I've done everything. I've, I've kept the Ten Commandments. I've, I've gone through the checklist. I've done all of these things. I'm a good person. I've attained the best I believe I can do in righteousness. What more must I do? Jesus Christ said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Lose the world and gain me. Now, he wasn't telling him that every Christian has to live in poverty. That's not what Jesus Christ was saying. He was presenting the paradox of the gospel. That the man who will humble himself before God is the man who will be exalted. That the man who exalts himself in his own eyes is the man who will be abased. 
It's the paradox of the Gospel. So Jesus states in verse 39 that the only ones who will see are those who are blind. May May I interpret this for you? The only ones who will truly see and accept the truths of God are those who are willing to humble themselves before God and admit that they have no answer and that they do not have the ability to save themselves. That's what Jesus Christ is telling them. He says, your sins persist, your, your sins remain because you refuse to see the solution. You have blinded yourself to Jesus Christ. As we meditate upon these truths, I'd like to ask some questions as we close. We who are believers in this room often see how God works through us, but we sometimes falter when God works in us. That health problem, that job situation, your past life, the failures of your past, the ways in which you've goofed up, whatever it might be. We want God to work through us, but can we not see how these circumstances that have been brought about in our lives allow God to work in us? Can you not see how those months without a job redounded to the glory of God as even though you didn't have a job, God provided for you? How much glory did God get in your life because you didn't have a job and yet you had everything that you needed. Can you not see how your past life of sin is God working in you as those who now see your life living, serving God is such a change? Can you not see how God has been glorified in you through that past life? Can you not see how that illness as you justified God in your circumstances, as you allowed God to be glorified, as you showed God's goodness in your life, even in the midst of physical suffering, was an opportunity for God to be glorified in you. As people looked at you and they said, wow, what a God who could give a person such joy in the midst of such difficulty. The work of God made manifest not just through you, but in you. Second question. This paradox of the Christian life. This would be for perhaps those in this room who are not believers. You know, there are many theories out there as to how a person can go to heaven, go to church, do good works, give, be baptized, whatever those theories are. They all rely upon self-righteousness. They all rely upon me doing something to be saved. Jesus Christ teaches something very different as He gives the Gospel in John chapter 9. He says if you would desire to be saved, you need to become blind. You need to recognize that there is nothing you can do. You need to recognize that you are a sinner. That you are not perfect, that you are not good, that there is none good but God, that you are a sinner, and that that sin has put you on the path to hell. Then you need to recognize in your blindness, as you humble yourself, 
that there is a solution and that solution is not in yourself. It's not in something you do. It's not in some work that you work up in yourself. It's a work of God. You recognize the need. You recognize the solution. Well, there's one more thing you need to do. You need to appropriate that solution to yourself. You need to say, as the blind man did in this passage, the formerly blind man, I believe. As Jesus Christ confronts you with the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the Holy Spirit convicts you, and you get to the point where you'd say, God, just show me what I need to do and I will believe. And he says, that's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Accept Jesus Christ's person and work. Accept what he did on the cross for you. Accept that he rose again the third day. Accept that he died for your sins and accept that you cannot in and of yourself save yourself from those sins, but you need Jesus Christ's righteousness. Then you'll see. That's the day that you are in the place where you can then be saved. So how are you doing living out the paradox of the gospel in your life? Do you see your weakness as an opportunity for God to be strong? Or do you demand control, forcing your way through situations that ought to be left to God? Have you lost your life to God, yielding the rights of your possessions, your family, your friends, your comfort? Or do you selfishly cling to those things, refusing to yield them to God? See, the Christian life is a life of paradoxes. But it's paradoxes with purpose. And that purpose is so that as we yield ourselves to them, God can receive the glory for what is happening through us. When we say that the Christian life is a life of faith, this is what we mean. That we are expected to live life in such a way that we trust the Word of God above what we see with our eyes. That we live in such a way that the treasure which we are building for eternity means everything to us and the treasures of this life mean nothing to us. That we live in such a manner that when people see us, they see men and women who are wholly reliant upon the Word of God as our source of instruction and guidance for every facet of our lives. That's the paradox of Christianity. Let's 